Today we conclude our series entitled Uncomfortable. And we've been looking at some topics that when you look at them like forgiveness and surrender and obedience and trust, it doesn't sound that uncomfortable unless you actually consider the things that the Bible asks you to do about these subjects. That's when it becomes a little uncomfortable. In fact, I think we should have entitled it awkward because sometimes we say things in our, that the Bible says and it just convicts us so much that it feels a little awkward. So today we're going to be talking specifically about the Bible and specifically about faith in the Bible. And again, you may be thinking, well, that's not a big deal. How unco- why is that uncomfortable? And it really isn't that uncomfortable. We're talking about God's word unless you assume and unless you consider the statistics. I did a little research for you guys so you guys wouldn't have to do it. And I looked into Pew, Pew Research. I looked into Barna. I looked into Gallup polls. And, and, and they all say basically different numbers, so, but they all say the same story. They vary in the numbers that they, they, they post, but they say the same story. And here's the bottom line for us, okay? About 75%, again, some people said 68, some said 75. By the, that number is quickly declining, but about 75% of Americans profess to be Christian. That means they believe in Christ. That's three out of every four American have a faith in Christ. And then there's different levels of Christianity. Some are highly religious. Some are not that religious. But the bottom line is three out of four Americans profess. Now, let's assume for a second that you, in the audience right now, represent 75, that 75%. Math, that means you're 100% of that 75%, right? Here's the uncomfortable part. Those same statistics say... It's already there. That only one out of two of you, 47%, believe that the Bible is the inspired word of God, which means the other half doesn't, or they have some doubts. And only 24% of you, one out of every four of you, this is not me, statistics, you guys can go look it up for yourself, believe that the Bible is the literal word of God. And again, that is the lowest in Gallup's you know, 40-year trend of tracking this. So is you, you guys alone comfortable yet? <laughs> There's this big disconnect in identifying as a Christian and believing that this is the literal word of God. Yet if you take this out of the mix, it takes away the entire Christian message. I had a guy in my office, actually a friend of mine that was in my office. He wasn't married, but he was living with his girlfriend. So I asked him, you know, what do you think the Bible says about that? Because we can have those conversations. And he responded by saying, you know, I just don't think the Bible is, I just think it's a little outdated when it comes to those type of matters, you know? And I asked him, well, what do you call a religion where you get to pick and choose this cafeteria approach, where you get to pick and choose the parts that you believe in and listen to? Wouldn't that be no religion at all? And he responded, well, it, that just, it just doesn't work for me. And, and I get it. I mean, There's some stuff in here that's hard to believe, you know, but the reality is that on any given week, according to these statistics, the book that we claim to embrace as God's literal word doesn't get opened. And I know it's difficult to understand. I get all of this. I, I have not always been a Christian, so I've been learning as I go along. But there's clearly a discrepancy between what we say we believe and our true beliefs as demonstrated by actions. Two different things. That to me, when I read this for myself, is a little uncomfortable and a little awkward for me because it happens to me as well. 
So today I decided to just go back to basics, to go back to talking about the Bible and why it's important, why it's reliable, can it be trusted? And for that, we need to start at the beginning. And John tells us when you first open up his book that in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. So before we actually start, I think, again, I should probably start by, by defining what the Bible is, because there's a lot of books out there with the name Bible. I mean, I've seen the Beauty Bible, the Fisherman's Bible, there's the, the, the Golfer's Bible, there, there's a, even a Biking Bible, a Cooking Bible. Just to be clear, these are not the Bibles that I'm talking about. The word Bible means uh, it's either a book or a collection of books regarded as the authority in a specific subject. Now, books like the Beauty Bible or the Cooking Bible, they use the title of Bible in their title because they're, they want to be the standard authority in that subject or in that topic. In fact, I recently heard a news outlet say that if your religion is sports, then our broadcast is your Bible. And no other book is more authoritative on the topic of Christian faith than the Christian Bible. Now, the Christian Bible, just so you know, in case for those of you that may not know, is a collection of six different books containing 1,189 chapters in them. It is divided into two sections, the Old Testament and the New Testament. The Old Testament is comprised of 39 books, and it spans between 1500 B.C. all the way to 400 B.C., and it starts with the book of Genesis, and it ends with Malachi. In fact, the Old Testament and the Jewish Bible, also referred to as the Hebrew Bible, contains the same 39 books of the Old Testament, although the, you know, the Hebrew Bible, they're, they're in different order. This Bible was written by over 40 different authors, and again, it spans over 1,500 years, written in three different languages. The Roman Catholic Church, just as a little tidbit, also included another 15 writings in their Old Testament called the Apocrypha which means hidden books. Interestingly about that is that they didn't add these books till about 500 years ago. Remember, this is about 2,000 years old. So about 500 years ago at the Council of Trent is when they added them. Before that, they were regarded as good, you know, devotional literature, but it was not part of the Bible. Now, the New Testament has 27 books, and it was written over a 50-year span. And I think we're familiar, most of us are familiar with the New Testament because it deals with the life of Jesus, his birth, his, uh, his ministry, his death, his resurrection. You know, the beginning of the Christian church as we know it, the, the instruction on how to be a follower of Christ. And again, the Old Testament was written primarily in Hebrew with a little Aramaic, and the New Testament is primarily written in Spanish. Did you guys know that? <laughs> Just checking to see if you're awake. Uh, It's written entirely and exclusively in Greek, which is why we're always explaining the Greek meaning of things around here. Now, did you guys get all of that? Because there's a test as you walk out of those doors. I hope you guys were paying attention. Now, the Bible is, honestly, it's, 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 it's a beautiful book. I mean, it contains so much different literature from poetry to humor and prophecy and letters and biographies and stories and advice and journals and all these laws. I mean, it's just, it's, a, it's an amazing book. Honestly, it's something that it's not easy to, I mean, it's easy to fall in love with. So, so the Bible is this entire library you see of this literature. Do you guys know that the Bible is the first printed book in a printing press? 
It is the number one selling book of all time. Nothing come close to it. And it has been translated into 1,946 different languages and growing. So when I say Bible, this is the, what I'm talking about. I'm talking about these 66 books that make up the foundation of the Christian faith since the beginning. Now, as Americans, you and I, we are what's called the Bible rich. We have over 30 different translations of the Bible in English. This one is my favorite, not only my favorite because it's all messed up. That means I, I actually used it once in a while. Uh, now everything is in my iPad, but this is the 1984 version of the New International Version. And I love this because you can't find it anymore. It's like a classic. Uh, you, you can't find this translation online. So I have to go to this book every time I want to read from it. Also, as we have, as you can see on the stage, we have all kinds, of, we, we have over 30 different translations. I mean, from the New American Standard Version, the New Living Translate, I can go on and, and multiply by 30. Uh, either way, we, we have so many of them. In fact, 24% of Americans have at least five Bibles at home. So we're Bible rich. So this takes me back to my original question. Is the Bible relevant? For that, we have to open up the Bible to 2 Timothy 3.16, and we're going to be looking at some key concepts on this topic. So bear with me, because there's a lot here. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All Scripture, all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So here, we're introduced to another word that describes the Bible, and it is the word scripture. The word scripture means sacred writings. Now, other religions, as you may or may not know, have their own sacred writings. For example, Islam has the Quran, and Mormonism has the Book of Mormon, and Hinduism has the Bhagavad Gita. That's a fun name to say. Well, the Bible is the Christian's faith's sac sacred writings, or scripture. Now, these sacred writings... This, this thing we just read from 2 Timothy is said to be God-breathed. And some English translations render this word inspired by God. But that's not totally accurate because the word inspired means to breathe in. But this word means to breathe out rather than to breathe in. So what Paul is saying here is that the fundamental characteristic of Scripture, in other words, what makes this sacred is the fact that God breathed them out and that they have their ultimate origin within God himself. Isn't that amazing? One reason that we should open up this book is because God is breathing these words out to you. Now, this fundamental characteristic of being God-breathed makes the Bible, as the scripture says, useful now, the word useful has some meanings. It means practical, it means beneficial, but I think the word that best captures the word useful is relevant. That's because of the Bible source, it has vital practical relevance for our lives. And again, this relevance is seen in four different parts, this Bible, this scripture tells us. It is four different areas in teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, right? That's what it says. Now, teaching focuses on the Bible as giving instruction on how to live life. Now, this assumes that we come to the Bible as learners, because as learners, we can be taught. 
And this instruction or this teaching, if you will, isn't just on heavenly things, but it's on practical things like how to be a good spouse or being a good parent or how to borrow or loan money or starting a business and so on. So that's what teaching is all about. The word rebuking, it sounds a little harsh. It really does, but it just means confronting the wrong ideas. See, it's about our beliefs and means confronting our wrong ideas about life. And again, this assumes that all of us carry around some misconceptions or some distortions about God, about ourselves, about others, about life, and frankly, that need to be changed. As an example, if I measure success in life with how much money a person has, and the Bible measures a person's success by how faithful they are to God, then my criteria for success has just been rebuked. And I need to change my definition to conform with God's definition. So a lot of us need that on a daily basis to be rebuked of what we believe in and conform it to God's beliefs. Now, correction is similar to rebuking, but it focuses on our behavior rather than our beliefs. This assumes that all of us, you know, find, you know, lose our way in life sometimes, and that we can easily wander off from the course that God wants us to be on. And the Bible corrects us when it gets, when it gets us back on track, when it reveals that we're on the wrong path and shows us the way to where God wants us to go. That is correction. And training in righteousness focuses on the Bible's role in helping us live the kind of life that pleases God. This assumes that a life of integrity doesn't come naturally to us and that we need help to live the kind of integrity or to have the kind of integrity that God would want us to have. So the Bible trains us up to do that because we can't do it on our own. All of this, it says that it is so that we can be thoroughly equipped for good works. It's not just for ourselves, but for the benefit of others. You know, it's been said that when all you have is a hammer, that every problem you face starts to look like a nail. Well, the Bible, you see, provides us with this complete set of like a spiritual toolbox to live full and rich spiritual lives of devotion to Jesus Christ. See, the key concept here is that since God gave us this entire Bible, God breathed scripture, then all of its teachings are relevant for our lives. My wife and I, we own our parents' Bibles, my mom, our mom's Bibles, and we own them because they passed away. So they're very near and dear to us. They're very special to us. They have a lot of meaning for us. But the last time I tried to open one of those Bibles, I couldn't open it pretty well because some of those pages had stuck together. It had just been sitting there, and, and, and something, something must have fell on it. So it's not useful, and I couldn't even open it properly just been sitting there for too long. I mean, here, this book, it actually looks awesome. It looks dated and worn and, and, and it just, but not useful. Well, I find that many Bibles in our homes are like that sometimes. They're, they're mostly used for decoration, like family heirlooms or like good luck charm, really. Yet, yet the Bible, you see, was meant to be open. It has incredible, incredible relevance for our ordinary lives especially for our daily lives. And in fact, I mean, oftentimes we as pastors are, are guilty of making this book boring. You might be bored to death right now. I don't know. But the way I see it is that it is not my job to use eloquent words to try to convince you of this word. You see, the Bible 
I don't need to make it relevant for you. It already is. All you have to do is open it, and it'll speak to every single situation of your life. And I know at this point, some people may be thinking, yeah, but everyone has their own interpretation of the Bible. And, this is, and, and I think that's true. If you treat the Bible like an encyclopedia, like, like if this just has a bunch of disconnected thoughts and subjects and ideas. I mean, it's easy to take a verse or two and just take it out of context. And, and you can make it say whatever you want it to say. But this is where Second Peter comes in where it says, above all, you must understand that the prophecy, that no prophecy of scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation. For prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Now here, we're introduced with another term for the Bible. It is the word prophecy. Now, we think of prophecy as predictions about the future, but biblical prophecy basically refers to God revealing things that we could not figure out on our own. Now, future events may be part of that, but prophecy focuses on God revealing himself. This verse, you see, is a warning to us not to read our own ideas into the Bible and to force our own interpretations of it, but to take the Bible on its own terms. Because remember, the ultimate origin of the Bible is God. God initiated the process of giving us the Bible, not human authors. And although human authors did write the words, they, were, they spoke from God. In fact, this scripture tells us that the word carried along here in verse 21 is really a sailing term that was used in Greek to describe the wind blowing into the sail, which carries along the sailboat. Easy to understand. Well, these human authors were consciously involved in the writing process. I mean, they weren't robots. We can even detect their own writing styles. But behind the process, God carried them along and ensured that the result would be something that God wanted to say or what God wanted to say. The key here, or the key concept here, is that since God has spoken through the Bible, it is important for us to listen to its message. Because over 2,000 years of Christian faith has affirmed that God has spoken through the Bible. And our roles as readers is in to hear the message of the Bible, not to read into it what we think we want it to say, or to use isolated parts for your benefit, or to justify your own ideas. I mean, as an example, before the Civil War, people who believed in slavery tried to justify their belief by quoting bits and pieces of the Bible. In fact, they used the Bible selectively, trying to rationalize their own involvement in slavery, and they refused to let the Bible speak for itself. And we have to be careful because whenever we try to read our own ideas into the Bible, we put ourselves in danger of missing God's voice and hearing our voice instead. In John chapter 17, this is what Jesus prayed before his arrest for all of us. It says, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. A key characteristic of the Bible is its truthfulness. It's what's written on here. And if you think about it, the Bible, if it's truly God-breathed, and we believe that because its origin of the Bible and the scripture tells us that God is truthful, and if God is truthful, and if he cannot tell a lie, then that means that what's written on this word is truth. 
And by saying that the Bible is truthful, we're saying that the Bible tells us the way things really are and that it accurately describes reality. The key concept here is that since God has revealed his truth to us in the Bible, that it becomes our final standard for what is true. Did you guys hear that? There's only one moral code. There's only one truth. And it's not what we think a lot of the times. It's what's found in here. You know, some people believe that this Bible has some truth in it, but it also has some mistakes as well. And it's up to the reader to kind of sift through the truthful statements and separate them from the mistakes, which of course makes the reader the ultimate authority instead of the Bible. And some people don't believe in the Bible because they say that it contradicts itself, but the reality is that they don't believe in it because the Bible contradicts them. That's uncomfortable. Whenever people tell me, that the Bible is full of contradictions, I ask them which part bothers them the most. And undoubtedly, I recognize there's some difficult passages in here. I mean, Jonah and the whale and, and the ark. And, and there's a list that could be like hard to believe. You, you, you parted the whole Red Sea? I mean, seriously, how'd you do that? There's some things that are difficult, but a careful reader, someone that truly pays attention and studies, they can see how these passages can be harmonized, and then no place does the Bible ever contradict the findings either of modern science or history. You know, there, there's a lot of things that are true in life that the Bible doesn't tell us about. The Bible doesn't tell us how to change a flat tire. It doesn't tell us how to build a home or how to master calculus. We know these things. Why? Because of experience, reasoning, science, and so forth. There, there's a lot of sources of truth in the world and the way I see it, I mean, as we face it, all truth is ultimately God's truth. The Bible's focus, you see, is to tell us the truth we need in order to have a relationship with God and to understand God's purposes and his will for your life. This truth, you see, we can never discover through science or experience. The Bible touches in areas of science and history, and when it does, it speaks to it truthfully. But you see, it wasn't written to be a science book. Its purpose is to reveal the truth about knowing God and God's ways. And again, for his will for your life, for the purpose for your life. This makes the Bible the Christian's ultimate standard for what's true. I mean, think about it. Just like a ruler is the standard for measuring an inch or a foot, the Bible is the Christian ultimate standard for what is true. And although the Bible reveals God's truth to us, its primary purpose is not merely to educate us. Hebrews tells us that for the word of God is living and active, sharper than a double-edged sword. It penetrates even to the dividing soul and spirit, joint and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of every heart. So along with scripture and prophecy... Here we're introduced to another description of the Bible. It is the word of God, which we, most of us re reference it as, or God's word. And although even though it's print, this one's printed in ink on the pages, the author of Hebrews is saying that somehow God's word is also living and active. 
which is interesting to me because I know it to be true. Maybe you do too, and maybe you've seen it in people's lives. This means that there's this dynamic energy that we can't explain at work whenever a person reads the Bible that somehow the living God is actively working in and in through the words of the Bible to impact the reader's life. This, you see, makes the Bible different than any book you can possibly read. This Bible is described as a sharp, double-edged sword, which focuses on its ability to penetrate our lives. And why does it have to penetrate our lives? Because we all have defenses up. And this book is able to penetrate all your defenses, and it's sharp enough to pierce into every part of your being with its message. So, So the key here is that since God is at work in our lives, through this Bible, it is essential for our spiritual formation or our spiritual transformation as well. Kind of like a caterpillar is just transformed into a butterfly, God works through the Bible to transform us into fully devoted followers of Christ. You see, the Christian faith is not just merely about ideas. It's not just merely about Sunday service, although it's a great, great thing that you're doing. Being a Christian is not just about learning scripture and being able to quote it or or having some reciting creeds. Being a Christian is first and foremost about a personal love relationship with Jesus Christ himself. You see, this relationship that I'm talking about is transforming. You cannot encounter Jesus and not have a transformed life. It will radically change you. And it does it slowly, but it, it, that, that's the true way of knowing if we are in Christ. I mean, I, I meet a lot of people in our community who have the right ideas about God, intellectually accept Jesus as being God's son, who believe the Bible is God's word, but who've never entered into a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. So all of these doctrines, all these things that we're talking about will do them no good. Because let, let me just tell you, the Christian faith is about being transformed, not nearly, not, not merely about being informed. Let me say that again. The Christian faith is about being transformed, not merely about being informed. Once we enter into a relationship with God through Christ, the Bible, you see, is God's primary means for changing us, for reaching us, for teaching us, correcting us. And of course, God uses worship like we just did earlier. He uses suffering. He uses prayer. And there's so many things that he uses to get us there. But the Bible is essential and central to our transformation into the image of Christ. It is a primary means that God uses to penetrate, like I told you, our defenses, to invade our hearts with his truth so that we can sort out all those thoughts and intentions and motives and that we can compare it to his truth, Right? In fact, the way I see it, if you don't want to be transformed, then don't read the Bible. Now, I know that I've kind of gone quite rapidly through all of this. I know that this is not your typical message, but I, I, we're talking about the Bible, and I'm like reading statistics, and I'm like, we, we need to talk about the fundamentals of this book. Maybe you know them. I don't know, but have you fallen in love with it? Do you seek this book every single day to see if you need to be rebuked or if you need to be corrected because you should have said sorry and you didn't or if you need to be trained up. Do you open this book? Because statistics says, I'm included with you, says I'm an American, Mexican-American, but either way, 
Same thing. I'm there with you. Some of us don't believe in it or we live in parts of it, let alone open it. For most of it, most of us, I suspect the real struggle comes in actually living as if we believe that this is true. You know, there comes a moment in all of our lives where our beliefs intersect our actions. We're always put in that situation in all areas of life. Are you going to walk the talk? And I believe this is one of those moments where we are confronted, not by me, but by God's word. Do you believe in me? Do you believe this is my word? And if so, are you going to open the book? This is the part where we get to respond to that, where you get to decide, as for you as your house, who are you going to serve? We know the answer, for I will serve the Lord, right? We know the scripture. Will you really serve? Will you really give? Will you forgive? Will you trust? Will you be obedient? Will you totally surrender? Because A plus B, and if A equals B and B equals C, then A has to equal C, right? I think that's called a Pythagorean theorem or something like that. Transitive law, transitive, you know what I meant. So here's what I would like us to do. If we want to respond, and always God gives us that wonderful freedom, that's the beauty of our God. I just ask that you make a commitment to open up his word. As, as, as hard as it may be for some of you, or maybe you've been reading it, but you just kind of go through the motions, just open it up. And just so that we can have a, a, a way of gauging what you're about to do and your commitment and your accountability, open it up to the book of Mark. That's in the New Testament. It's the second book in the New Testament. The book of Mark has, I believe, 32 chapters or something like that. 16 chapters. has That's a big difference. 16 chapters. I'll tell you why I thought 32. 16 chapters. And if you read half a chapter a day, that means you're going to read 32 chapters. Don't laugh at me. I know math a little bit. <laughs> if you read half a chapter a day, you'll be done by the end of March, and you'll be ready for Easter. Now, while you read, there's going to be some questions. There's so many online resources that can help you. There's commentaries and studies and notes, and the, the point is to open it. Commit. Commit to opening it up to Mark chapter 1 starting tomorrow. Well, starting in March, but you should start tomorrow. Why wait till March? Anyway, you start reading it and see what God does. If I had more time, I could tell you how God wants you to test them in that as well. It comes from Isaiah, but I am going to share some of Isaiah with you. Isaiah 48 says, The grass withers, and the flowers fall, but the word of our God endures forever. This is timeless. It's been tested over and over again, and it's never, no one's been able to find fault in it that truly lasts anyway. I ask that you would trust in that. I ask that you would be obedient in that, that you would respond to God by just saying, I'll open it up. And what God is going to do, because I'm praying that he'll do it, is that um, he's going to enrich you in your life in ways that you can never imagine. Will you pray with me? Father, we are grateful. We are apprehensive. We are maybe even a little confused of what you would have us do this morning. As for me, Father, I am thankful for your truth, 
found in your word. Lord, I am thankful for what the word does for my heart and, and the conviction that it brings. And Lord, I, I starting with me, I, I need to be rebuked all the time for my beliefs. Lord, and then I need to be corrected and put back on your path. Lord, so I pray that your light would be a light into our path. That we would just be stepping into your will as we open up the word. Lord, I pray for the people this morning that that want to open up the word and don't know where to start, Lord. I pray that they would just start opening it up and start reading it. Lord, our concern is that as we move forward from this place and as Americans, that those statistics, Lord, they, they, they paint a dire picture of where we are as believers of you. So I pray that at least in this room, that we would make a difference, that we would start by falling in love with your word, Father. And as we do, we know that you will encourage us and that you will find favor in us, Father, and that you will guide us and that you will comfort us and that you will give us strength. And Father, and that we will learn that you will teach us. Father, I pray that we would just fall in love with your word, maybe for some of us for the first time and for some of us all over again. Help us, Father. Give us courage, perseverance. Give us understanding. Give us a desire. Help us with our unbelief. Help us with the things that are hard to wrap our hands around. We know that you are faithful to do that and much more. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.